Welcome to the second episode of The Social Exchange. I'm your host, Mary Blackburn. Now, before we dive into today's episode, I would like to make a disclaimer as we will be discussing abuse in this interview. Now, due to this very reason, we have actually added some resources into our description. These are places you can visit in person, call, text, or even email. So if you or someone that is close to you is dealing with abuse, please feel free to utilize any and all of these resources. And of course, pass them along to anyone you think might need them. Now to tell you a little bit more about today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Kiara Nicholson, who works at the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center in San Marcos, Texas. And we discussed abuse in childhood and adulthood, and especially pertaining to relationships, as well as where we hope humanity is headed in light of recent events, such as the Me Too movement, as well as Time's Up. So without further ado, here is the second episode of The Social Exchange, and thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the second episode of The Social Exchange. I am sitting with Kiara Nicholson. Um, Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, my name is Kiara. As you mentioned, I'm a prevention educator at the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center. We serve victims of abuse, um, sexual assault and abuse, child abuse, and dating and domestic violence, anybody who lives or works in Hayes and Caldwell County. Um, But I don't do any direct services for my job. I have the job of trying to prevent sexual violence Mm -hmm. or dating and domestic violence in the community. So I mostly have conversations with middle school and high school students about that, but I do some work at the University of Texas State too. That's very interesting. How, um, How did you get into that field and how long have you been working in it? I've been doing it for about five years as staff. I did a semester-long internship before that, um, and I got into it because I also was a sociology student at Mm -hmm. Texas State, and I took the family problems class, and I needed an internship, and somebody came, and they did um, the presentation on domestic violence about why people stay in abusive relationships. And at the time, I didn't know that I was in an abusive relationship, Mm -hmm. um, or at least it was sometimes abusive, Mm -hmm. and I was having a really tough semester as a result of it and was trying to look for an internship and it was the one presentation that I remembered and I ended up applying for the internship, I got it, and then um, through the internship I learned that this is something that's really important to me and I want to have conversations with people about relationships, unhealthy and healthy relationships, Mm -hmm. because nobody talked to me about it when I was younger, so I want to be a person to talk to other people about it. That's really awesome that you do that work. Um, I think that there's not a lot of people that even know that that's a option to go into that field. So specifically with the age group that you are uh, working in, what are some of the differences that you've noticed in some of the important elements of really talking to younger people about this subject and about abusive relationships? How does that whole process work for you? I would say that first, um, just like my experience, nobody's talking to them about it. The Mm -hmm. adults in their lives aren't talking to them about it, but they are spending a lot of time on the internet where they're getting a lot of information about it. And sometimes it's good information and accurate information. And sometimes it's problematic and not so good information. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very similar to when I was their age, middle school and high school, to where nobody was talking to them about it. Or if they do, it's sort of like, um, you're too young to be in a relationship. You don't really know what love is. Um, But for them, it feels very real. Um, yeah. And it's do, I think it's doing them a disservice if we don't talk to them about it mm-hmm. because they're already forming beliefs and attitudes 
um, about what they think a healthy or an unhealthy relationship looks like, and then it's starting to get solidified in who mm -hmm. they are. Not to say that it can't change, but it's starting to form when they're very young, and then the adults in their lives don't talk to them about it at all, or they do talk to them about it, and they wait till they're like 17 or 18, mm -hmm. which oftentimes they've already experienced a lot of unhealthy things in their relationships. Yeah, especially in American culture, um, one of the things that I learned very little bit about this past semester is I uh, read a study done, and I believe it was comparing um, American parents to Dutch parents and the concern of sexual uh, sexuality and, and teens becoming um, sexually active, as they say, and um, how different it is between how Americans deal with it. It's very much like, don't have sex, don't enter relationships, you can't handle it, and um, you can't have a serious relationship, you really don't love that person, versus the Dutch really try to combine both um, educating their children um, about sex and also about relationships, like those go hand in hand. Do you think that that's a really huge part on how you said that it's so belittling to younger kids? And, you really feel so much when you're young. And to, to say that that's inadequate and um, not real is must be confusing and in paying them, as you said, a total disservice um, because those feelings are real. And even though you're young, you can feel things very intensely. Yeah, and to have sure. like these adults that are discrediting you must be very harmful along with having relationships that could be very unhealthy. So it's a really bad combination. But do you think that that specific Obviously, you can't say like overall, but is that something that you think is perpetuated by the way America teaches people about relationships? For sure, I would agree with you. And I've heard the same thing about like Dutch, like the Dutch, um, how they talk about relationships with young people and that they do talk about relationships and they're comfortable talking about sex even at a young age. And America doesn't, usually in the United States, we don't want to talk about sex. And if we are talking about it, we're not adding the part about relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and that part gets left out a lot where we talk to them about like, well, if you do have sex, then X, Y, and Z can happen to you. And it's usually around like STIs. Um, but nobody's really talking to them about consent, and if they are talking to them about consent, which is left out most of the time, but if they are, it's usually like, yes means yes and no means no, which is great, but there's a lot that gets left out of that. Mm -hmm. Like, what does yes look like? What does no look like? What if, can somebody be saying no without actually verbally saying Right, there's a no. whole gray area that I think we're trying to dive into with the Me Too movement and mm -hmm. Time's Up and a lot of stuff that's been going on in the past year. Yeah. Um, and sadly, for myself at least, my experience has been that we've lost um, a lot of chances to talk about those gray areas when it comes to consent and abuse of all different kinds, yeah. um, whether no matter the age, no matter the gender. gender um, but I think there's been a few cases where I think that the situation was gray, but we're, we feel that we must be so polarized and we have to make very concrete decisions yeah. on subjects. So there were even cases where I was kind of like, maybe this was a little gray. Maybe the dude didn't know he was doing something bad, doesn't validate what he did. And then I felt bad because I was like, oh, I'm a horrible person. I'm not seeing this for what it is. Like this person's evil and bad. But there are really gray areas that we haven't been able to educate people on about what consent looks like. And we yeah. need to start that at a much 
younger age yes. in our schools and in our homes and how do we even do that that's a really tricky thing because everybody's idea of what it is is so different yeah and i've felt the same way where um people it can feel what is the word that i want to use sometimes people don't want to humanize people mm -hmm. who um, commit abusive behaviors or um, do abusive behaviors against somebody else because we do think of it very black and white as mm -hmm. you're saying it's like either you're a person who knows not to do this or you're a person who's done this thing and now there's no hope for you and this is mm -hmm. where you're going to end up for the rest of your life you can't possibly change um, but people aren't born doing these things like there's a small percentage of people who may be like born not caring about other people <laughs> right and then the rest of people like we learn it along the way like we're socialized and we're told don't do this but oftentimes we're not really told like the healthy things to replace that with yeah um, so there becomes a lot of gray areas and then whenever you're talking about like well no means no and they're like okay well this person didn't say no, so mm -hmm. I thought I was fine, and now mm -hmm. people are talking about that I'm a rapist or I assaulted somebody, mm -hmm. and I don't really know how to come back from this. And sometimes people want to do better and they want to get help, but there's not really a lot of resources out there for people who are like, okay, maybe I did mess up, or maybe nobody mm -hmm. talked to me about this, so how do I learn different? But the only feedback that they're getting is like, you're this terrible person and you have to fix this on your own and then don't give them resources to do that yeah and i think they don't really they don't have resources they don't have a support system and um it's complicated because you know if i was in that situation i'd be like they don't deserve those things yeah and it's yeah. hard not to i i remember when everything was coming out about harvey weinstein mm -hmm. uh brian cranston from breaking bad w tweeted out something about how um with for instance, Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein and all the different stories that were coming up at the same time. Yeah. You need to look at a case-by-case -case basis, and there's obviously an epidemic going on, and yeah. we need to kind of dive into this. Those were his exact words. I don't yeah, have yeah. the tweet up right now, <laughs> so I don't know exactly. But he got um, kind of uh, put under blast. Uh, I put under blast for that. <laughs> um, and, and people got really mad at him because they were saying he was siding with these um, abusers instead right. of the victims. And I... I don't think that that's what he meant. I also understand where people are coming right. from because you're finally getting the chance to have your voices heard. And it's like, I don't want to be on the side of these abusers anymore. Yeah. Like, we have been on the side of silence for so long and yes. now we're having this momentum. So it's a very conflicting. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because they're like with people like Weinstein, like it's easy to demonize somebody who does things like that yeah. um, or like our president who's currently like in the mm -hmm. white house it'd be easy to demonize that yeah but then you have people like aziz and sorry i'm so glad you brought up his case yeah yes. and a lot of people and we talk about this in our office um where i work with other prevention educators a lot about um a lot of people are a fan of the comedy that aziz and sorry does because yeah. a lot of it is using comedy to talk about things like this that are happening in the community mm -hmm. i've watched comedy specials where he's talked about like the quote-unquote creepy guy who's doing like what we stereotype is something that's a problem yeah and then in the news they're talking about somebody coming forward and saying that aziz ansari pushed their boundaries and yeah. maybe assaulted them and didn't do something that they were comfortable with so what do we do with that because mm -hmm. we have this idea in our mind of what this person is going to look like, but anybody's capable of doing this. And yeah. that can be really difficult yeah. for people to sort of internalize.
That's so, that's so beautifully put. Uh, not beautifully, but like very well yeah. put. <laughs> um, and along with not only can anyone be a, an abuser, anyone can be abused. Yeah, yeah. And so with that, I um, I definitely want to talk. I don't want I I don't want to um, make it men versus women or no, anything. But for there's sure. a there's definitely a hidden side of abuse where mm-hmm. men can't come forward. Yeah. And I really do want to talk about that because. Um, I definitely think it's important to talk about all sides of it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, um, men that are abused, they don't get to come forward. And yeah. a lot, even through, we've been talking a lot about the Me Too movement, but through that, I remember there were cases where men would come yeah. uh, speak up and a lot of the time they were not met with the same support that women were. So mm-hmm. what is the side of of men that are victims of abuse. And um, I know you said you work at the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center. It's called the Women's Center, but y'all also help children and men and women. Yeah. um, All different ages and gender. So how does does that side work? Because it gets so... um, little conversation uh, about that. It definitely does. But as you said, a lot of people don't talk about men experiencing abuse because a lot of the narrative is around like men being perpetrators. Right, and it, and it's understandable because factually, yeah, statistically, women, yes, um, is hugely outnumbered that women are much yeah. uh, more vulnerable to that than men. Yeah, but that doesn't mean like men commit more crimes, and it's not yeah. that men are more likely to do it or like it's more it's not that it's innate in them as men it's just like the way that they're socialized yes i completely agree um that they're not really socialized to talk about their feelings um or connect with other people or if they are encouraged to have an emotion it's, it's anger yeah um and then sometimes people overcompensate or they just do the best with what they have mm-hmm. um and sometimes that's seen in a form of violence but there are men who don't do that or men who experience abuse and then nobody talks about mm-hmm. what it's like for them. Um, and as you mentioned, our agency does serve men and we have men who come and receive our services all the time and they stay in our shelter and a lot of people don't know that. A, because our name is Women's Center. Yeah. It's a historical <laughs> name. Um, a lot of people do want to change it, but there are a lot of people who do want to hold on to it for that historical significance. Um, but there are a lot of societal influences that make it to where men don't want to come forward because they don't, society generally believes that it can't happen to men, or maybe you're a less of a man if a female partner is perpetrating violence against you. But we're doing a disservice to men by not talking about it because A, they're not getting help. And then there are a lot of men or masculine people who are being left out of the conversation. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the times when we do talk about it, um, it's very heterosexual, yeah. where it's, men who are perpetrating abuse against a female partner but then there are a lot of men who aren't straight who are experiencing it as well and then when Mm -hmm. we don't talk about men we're leaving out not just straight men but men in general right yeah Yeah, the masculine and in all of its different forms and that's where a lot of it is kind of hiding in these little pockets that you can't even get to that you don't even see and i'm sure it's much bigger than we could even imagine Mm -hmm. um just in general with um all the um different identities there are and how complicated it is for them to get help because they're already having a hard time being seen for who they are and on top of that um the abuse that um follows that yeah um that journey is uh it's very hard for us to even kind of grasp because we haven't even really accepted yeah um the 
the way that um, that those those people identify themselves yeah. and who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you experience a lot of of varying degrees of different combinations of of abuse, and it comes in all different forms? So, um, let me try to word that better. <laughs> no, since y'all are a um, help center, yes, um, is it only normally physical abuse that um, people are experiencing when they come to you? Is it verbal? Is it mental? Is it kind of, I mean, I know those all kind of yeah. come in hand, but is it, do they wait for it to get um, physical until they come to you most of the time? Um, I would say I do agree with you that it's usually all of them mm-hmm. that we see. Um, I don't do a lot of direct services, so I can't speak on the day to day, but I would say that in general, a lot of people may possibly wait mm-hmm. um, until it's physical because um, emotional abuse or like unhealthy communication or like problematic communication that could potentially be verbal and emotional abuse is pretty commonplace. Um, if we're not really taught healthy communication a lot mm-hmm. of the time. So a lot of people just think it's normal and they don't recognize it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the conversations that we do have about abusive relationships are about physical mm-hmm. abuse. So if a lot of people think like, well, I didn't know that my relationship was abusive because they didn't put their hands on me. Yeah, and I've heard people say that Yeah, um, my entire life. And that's yes. it's always kind of jarring to hear that sometimes you still feel like that. And um, I knew growing, growing up it kind of took me along. And I'm still working through what is abuse right. and what is not abuse. And you, I remember you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that when you first took the family problems class here at the um, Texas State University, you didn't realize that you were in an abusive relationship. Right. You were in college yeah. it took until a professor was talking about it in a classroom yeah. for you to realize what was going on. Mm-hmm. And some people don't even get the, the moments of having that. Right. I, and even then, like as I was sitting in the class, I didn't really connect any of the dots. It wasn't until I got my internship, because I interned at his Call of Women's Center, and I was going through our volunteer advocate training mm-hmm. and really learning about the dynamics. And I was like, this kind of sounds like my relationship, mm-hmm. and this makes a lot of sense on why I've been feeling the way that I've been feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, or why I know that my relationship isn't good, but I don't think it's abusive because they didn't put their hands on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that we do see at our agency, um, and not just at our agency, but people who call hotlines, I've heard that um, some people say that they wish that the abuse was just physical because then their bodies can heal from it and they mm-hmm. move on. And it's the emotional and the verbal abuse that really sticks with people. So it's really unfortunate because they don't recognize it as being a problem at first, but that's what sticks with them in the long run. Yeah, and and with that, um, this kind of directly leads into my next question. What are the mental and physical health um, uh, negative effects of abuse, uh, specifically you work with children and high schoolers a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember in your presentation, um, for our listeners, you came and spoke at the family problems class that I took this semester, (laughs) which is how we met. Um, I remember you saying that 
victims of abuse actually experience major PTSD. Yes. Um, and that comes a lot into what you were just saying. So what are some of the lasting effects for your mental state? And even some of, uh, obviously, PTSD is also very physical as mm-hmm. well. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, some of those lasting effects include depression, anxiety, eating disorders, which people don't really think about, but um, for some people who have eating disorders, it's a way to maintain control over an area in their life where they feel like they're not really feeling a lot of control. Um, Substance abuse, and then PTSD, as you were saying. A lot of times when we have conversations about PTSD, it's around um, veterans, specifically veterans who've gone to or come back from war. Um, And statistically, the rates of PTSD are higher in people who've experienced domestic violence and sexual assault in comparison to those of veterans. Wow. Yeah, almost um, by a large margin. Wow. A lot, a lot higher. But we don't really talk about it because not a lot of people know that Mm -hmm. it's an issue. um, Now, I've never been in the military, and so um, I don't know very much about how PTSD works for veterans, so I just want to... Um, come forward with that, but with um, uh, victims of abuse that experience major PTSD, is that because it's more interpersonal and it's um, much closer and constant versus, I believe, from, I don't know what my perception is of what it would be like, but when you are, um, you know, uh, a, a soldier a lot of it, maybe I feel like you can kind of separate a little bit more because you can put a lot of reasoning behind it and uh, it's for your country and it makes a lot of sense. Right. And versus, uh, you know, with, and I'm sure that this happens in the Army as well, but with um, victims of abuse, uh, when it's happening, especially with someone that they're close to, yeah. that's a much more psychologically damaging, I would feel, yeah. because you're there's this battle of, oh, this person's supposed to care for me, and they're mm-hmm. supposed to love me. Maybe this is what love is. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we tell ourselves when we are in the middle of abuse. Right. I would say, and I also have never been in the military um, and don't know as much about PTSD, but PTSD is usually as a result of experiencing something traumatic. Mm-hmm. So people can have PTSD um, from going to war zones, from experiencing abuse, from being in a car accident. Um, people can experience PTSD for a number of different things. So I would say it's largely from experiencing something traumatic, but I would say that I could see the argument that being so close to someone and then experiencing abuse as a result of their relationship with them can be very traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that stays with you and it's lasting. And I think of um, the science behind sexual assault survivors um, and counselors at the Women's Center who've talked about the science behind it in the way that your brain um, will react to trauma and the trauma response to the brain Um, there's a certain part of your brain that goes offline. Um, It can, not to say that it always will. Mm -hmm. Um, And you will start to um, encode the things like smells or um, focus on something that's going on in the room, like a ceiling fan or something. Um, And those are the things that sort of get imprinted in the mind while the rest of it is sort of going offline during a traumatic experience. Um, So then people will experience flashbacks, which a Mm -hmm. lot of people can associate with PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, And those flashbacks flashbacks can be um, 
long term. Mm -hmm. So I would say that it's very similar from just experiencing a trauma mm -hmm. and then your body um, internalizing that trauma mm -hmm. in a number of different ways and then internalizing it um, in the form of like your senses, like your five senses and mm -hmm. holding on to those memories in that way. Mm -hmm. Now, um, along with uh, long-term PTSD and um, mental health issues that can surface. What are the cases where, um, for instance, if a child or a teenager, um, if their parents are abusive to right. one another, but not necessarily abusive to them, mm -hmm. what are the effects of that? Is that still, would someone that has experienced uh, association to a really abusive relationship, would they still be able to come to the Hayes Caldwell Center, or how you know? Are, how much do y'all know about the effects of that? I want to say that we do know a lot. We do have counselors on staff where their job is to counsel children who've mm -hmm. witnessed domestic violence mm -hmm. in their homes because it does have lasting effects, and it's very similar effects to people who experience domestic violence, like depression, anxiety. Um, the potential for substance abuse or eating disorders, mm -hmm. but it's also um, like a lack of focus or withdrawing or acting out in some way or feeling guilt and shame. Um, and some people will stay in their relationships for a number of reasons, like their abusive relationships, um, and they think, well, it's okay because they're not abusing the children or the children don't see mm -hmm. it. Um, and Children see everything, whether yeah. we realize it or not. Right. Um, and it is affecting them, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, so we do have counselors at our agency who do specifically see children who witness domestic violence mm -hmm. because we do know that it can have long-term effects on them too, just from being in a home where it's happening. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you just mentioned there was that a lot of the time it takes the, um, people a long time to leave their abuser and mm -hmm. a lot of the time they'll go back because they're like oh they didn't hurt the kids yeah um I can still be with them so what is the cycle of abuse and um how does how does one break it obviously that's kind of a, a very generic question right <laughs> to each individual but um what yeah, let's talk about a, a little bit of the cycle of abuse with that. So statistically, it takes a person about an average of seven times mm -hmm. to successfully leave an abusive relationship, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, and people will talk about it in the form of like a cycle of abuse, as you were mentioning before. So you start out in your relationship and things are good, and then maybe they start to not be as good, and you'll start to see some of those warning signs or red flags, as we call them, where they text you and they call you a little bit more than you're comfortable with, or you feel like you're constantly having to reply to them um, or maybe you start to feel yourself getting more afraid of them or you start to make excuses for their behavior where things aren't as happy anymore and you notice that things are off and then maybe it can escalate into something that's a little bit more abusive maybe this is the first time that they hit you or maybe they're um, tracking you through your cell phone is starting to get more extreme or maybe you feel um, not as happy in their relationship and then they start to apologize for it if you bring it to their attention mm -hmm. or they realize that they're doing it and maybe it's um, getting you gifts or saying like I'm going to work on it or I'm having um, just a stressful day at work or a stressful time at school and it's going to get better and then it happens again. Mm -hmm. um, usually it does happen again and it doesn't have to be that it happens from day to 
day to day. It can happen over a course of months, over a course of a few years. But the fact that it happened more than once means that um, it's a cycle of abuse. And sometimes it can be difficult to get out of that cycle because just like healthy relationships, abusive and unhealthy relationships start out good too. Like you mm -hmm. care about this person, you love them potentially. Um, so there are good parts that are going on. Or maybe they're, um, they're not abusive all the time. So you do enjoy time that you spend with them sometimes. Or maybe it's to a point where um, you're dependent on them economically. Mm -hmm. You don't make a lot of money or you don't make any of your own money and they make money and you're dependent on it on them for paying your bills or if you have mm -hmm. children together getting things for your children um, or you feel social pressure to stay together like your friends and your family are telling you to like hey work it out or maybe like your mm -hmm. faith community mm -hmm. um, is something that's very important to you and you're getting an influence from your faith community of mm -hmm. um, you made this commitment before God or whoever it is mm -hmm. that you believe in um, so you need to stay together and you need to work mm -hmm. this out so there are a number of reasons why people do stay and that's mm -hmm. one of the most common questions we get is like why would you be in a relationship with somebody who's doing this to you mm -hmm. um, and we know that there are a number of reasons why people end up staying um, but we don't always question why people are doing it mm -hmm. um, and I think it's because there's for a number of reasons but one of them being like there's just a lack of resources for people who are doing it um, oftentimes it takes to them getting to this extreme end where they're convicted of doing something and then there's batter intervention programs but we got to do something before people get into a batter intervention program right like right people yeah, need to be able to talk more about their relationships because nobody's talking to them about it when they're younger when they're forming their ideas of what a relationship should be mm -hmm. yeah um that kind of ties into what we were talking earlier because we really can't wait for it to get that bad because mm -hmm. there's so many steps that you can take yeah. to prevent it mm -hmm. um and that's not at the victims at all that's just to no. society yeah. i want to make that clear that that is not um to these people that are out of resources that mm -hmm. didn't get the chance to be um exposed to healthy relationships and know what that's like that's to how we build relationships as a society how we educate people on it yeah. um now so what happens if they don't have resources. I know we kind of went over this in your presentation. Would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit of, I don't want to say like the worst case scenario, but kind of what ends up happening. I know when um, you had your presentation, you talked about how they run out of resources and they mm -hmm. end up either having to go back home right. or they're homeless because the, um, now I, I do believe that this is correct, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Families with children are one of the fastest growing homeless groups in America. Yeah, um, but specifically women with children. Mm -hmm. um, amongst women with children, 80% or women with children who experience homelessness, over 80% of them have experienced domestic violence at some point. Mm -hmm. um, and 63, I want to say, percent of women who are homeless experience domestic violence as adults, whether they have children or not. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the leading causes of homelessness for women, specifically women with children, um, because sometimes you run out of those resources and home is a place that may be the only resource, or if you really need to leave because it's for the safety of you and your children, um, then you leave and whether you have resources or not and sometimes that resource is hopefully a homeless shelter in your community which is unfortunate um, that for a number of women that's the only option they feel like they have
Mm-hmm. And that's something I didn't know um, before you came and spoke to us in class. I didn't know that families, specifically women with children mm-hmm. and female identities with children, um, were the fastest growing homeless group because you don't see them, you know? Yeah. And so I think the, a lot of the time what's hard about abuse, about homelessness, and about the whole conversation is we talk about what we see. Right. And if we don't see it, it's not happening. Right. And it doesn't need to be talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what's very um, disheartening about yeah. really trying to tackle it um, because sometimes I remember when I was younger, um, especially just talking about abuse towards women specifically, um, about uh, sexual harassment and, and rape and so many things that I was seeing in very you know micro levels just growing mm-hmm. up. Um, I remember, and this also has to do probably with where I grew up, but um, I grew up in the Bible Belt. It's a beautiful, wonderful place. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I remember trying to have conversations about um, rape culture and mm-hmm. um, a lot of the inequality that women face. And I remember people really telling me that uh, it wasn't true, right. uh, that that's really not how things are, and kind yeah. of trying to convince me otherwise. So, you know, I'd be like, oh, you know, I, I want to talk about this, or even bringing up something simple like, oh, I'm a feminist. I yeah. think that these issues should be heard for both men and women. And be like, no, um, I don't yeah. think it does because I don't see it. Right. And so I think a lot of the time I would get really frustrated about that, but I have mm-hmm. to kind of take a step back and be like, this person's either in denial or they truly live such a great life they don't see this. Right. Which is good for you, I guess. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, like, that's the, how yeah. abuse works. Like, yeah. it thrives in silence. Yes. If everybody knows it's going on, people are probably going to be a little bit more likely to want to do something about it. Exactly. Now, I don't know if this is something that you've been able to track, but do you feel like more people have been coming forward um, to the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center since uh, the breakout of the Me Too movement and Time's Up and this discussion being a lot more open? Has that affected um, people's ability to kind of take that step forward to Um, getting protection or help have you noticed any shift with that or has it really not that I don't know but I do know that our numbers continue to increase every year Mm -hmm. um, across all of our programs Um, and some people do wonder like oh are more people being sexually assaulted and it's like no it's not that more people are being sexually assaulted I do think that more people are a either recognizing that what happened to them was sexual assault or abuse Mm -hmm. um, or they're it did happen to them and they're ready to talk about it now mm-hmm. um, or for a number of reasons now they're like now I know what resources are available mm-hmm. to me um, so I would say that maybe it's correlated that with like me too mm-hmm. and times up more people are coming forward and that's one of the questions we also get is like if it happened to you such a long time ago why are you talking about it <sighs> now um, yeah which can be very frustrating yeah <laughs> but we know that um, Previously, like, it thrives in silence. So a lot of times victims of abuse aren't believed like that right. it's actually happening to them. Yeah. So when you try to go out and you want to get help, A, you're not believed, or if you're having or choosing to go through the criminal justice system, it's like being victimized all over again. Right. Because people are talking to you and they're asking you a lot of questions like, are you sure this is what happened to you? Yeah. What were you wearing? Um, who were you spending time with? Um, did you say yes at some point and you changed your mind? Making it seem like what happened to them is their fault. Yeah. Um, and then it takes so long that if people do end up, um, 
A, having evidence against the person that did assault them specifically when we're talking about sexual assault. Um, A, getting to a courtroom where you're trying a person in court for that. Even making it to trial, the statistics is very low. I want to say it's like 2%. And then from that 2%, it's probably 2% of those who actually get convictions. Right. So hearing that, a lot of people don't want to come forward. And then when you have movements like Me Too and Time's Up, and you see other people talking about previous experiences, mm-hmm. it's like, maybe this is my time because there's power in numbers, right? Right. Like, maybe now that all of us are saying that this is happening to us, maybe people are going to start to believe us now. And maybe I can actually do something about it now. So um, I guess that was a very long way of saying that um, it's not that people wait to talk about it. Mm-hmm. It's just... It can be very discouraging to talk yeah. about it and scary to talk about it right when it's first happening to you. Right. I um, And also along, you kind of talked about the legal side of it. Mm-hmm. I think so much of not wanting to come forward is what you kind of tell yourself, like, what's the point? Right. Like, I'm, you're going to be victimized again. You don't have the resources. You don't have a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Even if you do have a lawyer and yeah. all the money, it's going to take years yes. to get... Um, a hearing and then dealing with, uh, you know, the publicity of that if you're yeah. famous or if you're not. It's or, hard. Yeah. And so, it takes so, so long. Yeah. It takes about two years to even get to that point. And you, a lot of people, they just want to be past it. Yeah. It's like, I've moved past this and now you're contacting me about this legal case and I don't want to have to bring this up again. Right. So they don't want to do it. Um, and another issue that we see that's sort of connected is the backlog of testing rape kits. Um, people, whenever they go to hospitals, they can get a sexual assault um, kit done that swab, swabs and looks for evidence, and then it's saved, and then it can be sent off to a lab to be tested for the evidence and held. Um, but there is a big backlog of testing those rape kits, and it takes a very long time to test them now because mm-hmm. there's so many of them, and it takes a lot of money because there's so many of them. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of money or other resources to test those. Um, and so not having those tested, A, we're losing the opportunity to catch repeat offenders because there's a small percentage of people who are like sexually assaulting people and a lot of them are repeat offenders. Um, and then by not testing them, it sort of holds up people's ability to like go through with getting that evidence out there because there's such a backlog. Um, and then say they do want to go forward with it in the future and then they want to get their kit tested and then it's taking forever to get done, they could run out of their statute of limitations, which I believe is five years for the state of Texas, for adults anyway. So there's a lot of things, at least within the criminal justice system, that are working against victims and survivors to come forward and talk about it. Yeah, I think that's something that um, one of the many plus sides that's come with the technological age of social media and with the movements that we've been talking so much about um, is that you don't need a lawyer anymore you need a Twitter and Instagram exactly and you know even if Harvey Weinstein I don't even you know he's off wherever (laughs) Um, you know even with cases like that even if it never made it to trial that person's career is done right and there's a lot of power in that Mm -hmm. and being able to kind of take that into your own hands and say you know what I acknowledge that this 
the way that our criminal justice system work, um, is right now works against a lot of people yeah. all across the board. Yes. And um, you now we're just talking about one little small yeah. part of it, but being able to say, well, I'll just find my way around that, I think right. is something we've never, I didn't think I would see in my lifetime. Right. Um, that really happened so fast. Mm-hmm. And I really hope it doesn't lose its momentum. I think there's a lot of pluses with it, mm-hmm. but one, um, I, th- I wouldn't even call it a negative, but one thing that I think is kind of interesting about the way that we've been using it, um, I've talked to friends and um, a couple different people about how along with the Me Too movement and all the stories that were coming up, so many of my own um, past traumatic events right. kind of resurfaced. Yeah. And I know a lot of people were experiencing that. Yeah. And a lot of, luckily, even on social media, a lot of people were coming out saying, you know, even if someone's not speaking up doesn't mean it didn't happen to them. Exactly. And you can say that. And you can say it, and I do think it's important to say it, but mm-hmm. I think that people don't really understand that yeah. a lot of the time. And I think there's something, especially with how it came out in Hollywood, which is, I, you know, the whole world is corrupt and riddled with a lot of abuse, but right. especially in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, with all of this breaking out of Hollywood, I think one thing that has been interesting is we already naturally expect so much out of um, celebrities, mm-hmm. and we kind of think that because they're very job is the nature of empathy yeah that we think because i've seen you at your most vulnerable in this film i deserve your most vulnerable person right and if you are not leading this march then it's not going to happen and so there's a lot of pressure i felt for these people that a lot of the time you know if they did want to talk about it and if it was a long time ago Mm -hmm. i think that's totally fine but there was a lot of pressure to for them to have to tell these stories that weren't yeah. ours for to make them tell. Yeah. And I think that there's a big problem with um, having to, you were talking about how you have to take all these swabs and there's yeah. all this, um, this really crazy side to it that's to make, to make it believable. And we have to go into such great detail and we have to tell these stories and it's like, no one deserves these. And even if no. I don't tell you, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah. And that doesn't mean justice shouldn't be served for me mm-hmm. or against this person. And that's something that I've been a little bit, um, I know hopefully we'll get there, but a lot of the, the conversations, um, say for a, a, a few of them and, and mm-hmm. those few are important, a lot of the time it has been like big businesses like Harvey Weinstein, like comedians and this actor. and. It's like, okay, but sometimes it's your best friend. Yeah. Sometimes it's a family member. Yeah. Sometimes it's someone you've known for a really long time, and a lot of the stories don't really tap into that. I think one that came out that was a little interesting, and I think they really did try to get into the grayness of some of these situations, was Uma Thurman and Quentin Tarantino. She right. was like, he's my friend, but I also am understanding that what he did was not okay. And... Um, she waited to tell that story, and I think she told it how she, um, I think she came at it where she wanted to to the public to know the story. So luckily for her story, I think it was something that was voluntary, um, but I think a lot of the time with a lot of those stories that are so gray, it's even harder to come forward. And for me, um, and I've experienced, so I've had great uh, lucky life where I haven't had too much trauma but even with the minor things that have happened I'm like I don't just des- like owe anyone 
this information and I think people need to know that and I think that we need to find ways where just because you don't need to tell your story we Mm -hmm. still have to find a way to teach people moving forward Um, so I guess with that we've talked a lot about where we've been where we are currently where do you think we need to go with um, how we treat um, abuse on both sides both the perpetuator and the victims we've talked a lot about how we need to educate people Mm -hmm. at younger ages about relationships so what's some of your advice or kind of your hope for a better future with that Um, well I'm thinking about what you just said about um, a lot of times you don't think that it's somebody that we know usually Mm -hmm. that it's happening to them um, that, or at least, like, it's somebody that we know and we trust or, like, we look up to. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times whenever we do talk about abuse, um, it's somebody that we don't know or maybe a person we went on a first date with or, like, the person who, like, attacked us when we are in a parking lot or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and statistically, one in four women are going to experience sexual assault mm-hmm. or abuse. And that doesn't compute for a lot of people because they're like, one in four women can't possibly be attacked by somebody mm-hmm. that they don't know. Um but something that I hope for for the future is like that we have more conversations about like oftentimes it is somebody that you know and you trust and you look up to. Mm-hmm. Um, so having more conversations about what it looks like, hopefully getting the backlog tested. <laughs> yeah, that would be. Because that would be great. It would help uh-huh. a lot of people having more of those conversations um, about what consent looks like in relationships. But I hope that people continue to have conversations and that the momentum doesn't die down. Mm -hmm. And we try to um, change our policies or at least the way that our criminal justice system works to help people. Um, But I also hope that people will have more conversations um, in the way that we socialize people to think about sex and relationships Mm -hmm. um, and what it means to be a person and like our gendered expectations. Mm -hmm. Um, And the work that I do, um, part of it is primary prevention of sexual violence. And that's trying to address the root causes, both risk and protective factors on what will make somebody um, more likely to perpetrate violence against Mm -hmm. somebody else. So I'm hoping that we can have more of those conversations Mm -hmm. when people are younger um, mm-hmm. that it's okay if um, your son cries or doesn't want to play yeah. football yeah um, it doesn't mean that he's going to be gay and if he is gay that's okay that's, too yeah, that's great yeah um, and that uh, women should be able to dress more comfortably with what they want to wear yeah. and it doesn't mean that it's an invitation for like harassment um, or yeah. it's a statement about who she is as a person or that you're able to commit violence against her right or that there are people who don't exist within the binary of male and female mm-hmm. um, that experience abuse too and then when we talk about it in terms of a male perpetrator and a female victim there are a lot of voices and experiences that get left out of that mm-hmm. so i hope that the movement going forward continues to pull more people in mm-hmm. and raise their voices up because society continues to marginalize marginalized people. That's why they're marginalized people. Um, And when their voices are left out, abuse just continues to happen Mm -hmm. to them and there continues to be a lack of resources available for them. So I hope that we see more resources being available and I hope that we see more resources being available for people to continue to work on learning what a healthy relationship looks like and what that means. Um, talking to young people like how do you want to treat somebody you're in a relationship with and how do you want to be treated including your friends Um, because 
our parents or at least our caregivers are one of our first bases for learning about relationships and as we get older our friendships um, influence that and then we start dating if that's mm -hmm. something that we're interested in mm -hmm. so I hope that we continue to have more conversations I would say that mm -hmm. one of the best things we can do in general is just talk about things right more um, and talk about many different experiences and try to change the systems that aren't working for people um, yeah. But I think, as you said before, that I think we're doing a pretty good job. Yeah, I um, really have. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I've, it's interesting. I've, I Obviously, there's so much abuse that's still happening. Yeah, and, there, for sure. and the system is still broken. And there's still a lot of problems. But just think, if I think back to a year or two ago, if mm -hmm. we had tried to have this conversation, I feel like it would have been such a different conversation. Yeah. Um, and that's very uh, encouraging in a lot of ways. Right. That at least people are being heard and yeah. the discussion is happening yes. to say that the discussion is happening is right. um, so solidifying. Yeah. Cause we know the discussion has in general has been happening over time. Like we yeah. know that like movements like these aren't new, but with social media and like technology and things yeah. like that, it allows people to connect with more people who have more experience, like similar experiences mm -hmm. or connect with more resources. Um, or learn about things faster that they didn't even know yeah. was happening. Right. And I, be able I think, to empathize with other people better. I think that that's a really important part is um, getting to that information and really learning how to empathize with all different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. And maybe that will all help us move to a state where we can treat people better. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully that's the ideal. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was such a pleasure having you. Thank you for Thank taking you for your time. Me. Oh, it was such a pleasure. <laughs> and I guess we'll uh, talk to you guys next time we have a podcast. <laughs> Thank you for making it all the way through this episode of The Social Exchange. Now, as promised, we will have some resources for you. Now, for local resources, we have the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center if you are in the Austin and San Marcos area. Now, I want to remind you that they help people of any gender and age. And for national resources, we have Love is Respect, National Domestic Violence Hotline, and RAIN. RAIN stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. So that is R-A-I-N-N. -N. And they are the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. Now, we will be listing all of the numbers and websites for these organizations. So again, if you or someone you know is experiencing abuse, please don't hesitate to utilize any of these sources and pass them along to anyone you think might need them. And thank you again for listening to the second episode of The Social Exchange.